a Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. Ed and Lorraine Warren. What could I possibly add that you may not know? Well, we'll start where it all started. The Warrens devoted their lives to examining the supernatural, trying to bring an understanding and some sort of peace through that understanding of the other side to the forefront while helping bring peace and serenity to families that were affected by this. The work that they've performed was nothing short of extraordinary. The cases that they documented, along with the relics and artifacts they collected, are considered to be the most powerful connections between the human and spirit worlds. Ed Warren was a demonologist, while Lorraine was a transmedium. They were not occultists, and they were not strange. If you ever had an honor and privilege of speaking to them, they would seem like everyday people with everyday jobs. And they were ordinary people. They just happened to do extraordinary work in a field that most of us fear, don't believe, and could possibly not understand. The forces they confronted are religious entities that, by their own admission, exist for the sheer purpose of opposing the works of God. These are evil forces, and they are formidable, and yes, they are real. These forces are eternal, and they exist today. In a world that scoffs at ghosts, and laughs at the unusual. The Warrens deliver a contrary message. That message is this. As Ed Warren once said, the fairy tale is true. The devil exists. And God exists. And for us as people, our very destiny hinges upon which one we elect to follow. Where it all began, 1944. This is where Ed and Lorraine met. Ed was 16 years old, working as an usher at the Colonial Theater in Bridgeport, Connecticut, when he met Lorraine, befriended her, and they began dating. 1945. Ed Warren was deployed in 1945 after enlisting in the United States Navy in World War II on his 17th birthday. He would only be deployed for four months before the ship he was on sunk from beneath his feet. It was after Ed's shipwreck that he returned stateside on a 30-day survivor's leave. While he was back home, Ed and Lorraine became Mr. and Mrs. Ed and Lorraine Warren. It was a very short while later in 1951 that they gave birth to their daughter Judy, and Ed attended art school. 1952. This was when Ed withdrew from school after about two years and the couple set up pop-up stands throughout tourist areas of Massachusetts, Vermont, Rhode Island, and coastal Connecticut to sell Ed's paintings. This was also when Ed's interest in the paranormal went beyond his paintings and drawings. When he heard any report of a structure being haunted, he and Lorraine, who was a skeptic at the time, would go to these sites and homes to investigate. Ed would stand out in the street and sketch the house, then approach the homeowners, with a sketch as a friendly gesture to get invited into the home. It worked. 
And that was when the New England Society for Psychic Research was founded. 1968. A student nurse was given a Raggedy Ann doll as a gift and she brought it home with her where she lived with her roommate. It was almost instantaneously that they noticed strange happenings within the doll. They were introduced to a medium who told them the doll was inhabited by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle. The two roommates tried to accept the doll's spirit and please it, only to have it reciprocate maliciousness and violent intent. This is when Ed and Lorraine were called and pronounced the doll demonically possessed. They removed the doll from the house and encased it in a glass box that contained the evil-spirited entity, where to this day it remains encased in the glass box with a warning sign posted on the front that says, Warning. Positively. Do not open. 1971 There's a little area in Rhode Island called Harrisville. In this particular case, the home was owned by the Perrin family and was said to be haunted by a witch from the 19th century by the name of Bathsheba Sherman. Now, based on the Warren's research, the witch cursed this particular piece of land so that any inhabitants would eventually suffer a painful and untimely death. Of course, this was the inspiration for the 2013 film The Conjuring, a film that Lorraine Warren consulted on. 1974. I don't think there's an adult alive anywhere that doesn't know this one. In 1974, a small community in Long Island called Amityville, New York, is where 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr. brutally shot his parents and his four siblings while they slept in their beds. Just one year later, George and Kathleen Lutz purchased the property at a steal for just $80,000, or so they thought. That also included much of the DeFeo's furniture. The Lutz family only stayed in the home for 28 days before being terrorized out of their own house by a demonic presence. It was in May of 75, five months after the Lutz family left the home, that Ed and Lorraine investigated the home along with a news crew to document the findings. During the investigation, an infrared time-lapse camera picked up an image of what was called a demonic boy standing at the bottom of the staircase. The Warrens came to the conclusion that the house was inhabited by an evil supernatural entity due to its violent history. Now, some parts of that account were portrayed in the opening scenes of the 2016 film, The Conjuring 2. During the interview that I had with Lorraine Warren around 2006 to 2008, there was only one stipulation, one, that we will not discuss the Amityville case. When I asked her publicist why, stating that this case made them famous worldwide, he simply said, Lorraine will not talk about it. If you bring it up, she'll hang up. So I respected that fact. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 10 
The Mountain Mystery of Lorraine Warren in the Shadows. Part One. The last to fall I won't shed a tear for them to see There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. They are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries. Here's Chris Sloan. I want to say hello to our newest Patreon supporter, Sherry Henson. Remember, when you become a part of Patreon, you get early access to all episodes. Instead of having to wait till Fridays to get them, you can get them on Tuesdays. And don't forget about the Mountain Mystery Blurs, available only to Patreon subscribers. Support us on Patreon. We're independent, and we need your help to keep the Mountain Mysteries going. Thank you so much. You know the cases. And the families. The DeFeos and Lutzes of 112 Ocean Avenue, better known as Amityville. The Snedekers of a haunting in Connecticut. Perhaps you've heard the name the Enfield Poltergeist, or maybe at some point, somewhere, you've heard of a seemingly harmless doll that is anything but harmless, known as Annabelle. You've heard of the Smurl and Perrin families, from the Conjuring universe? Oh yes, those families. Now, get to know the woman who investigated these and other cases, and was a part of the inspiration for the film series known as The Conjuring Universe, that shook, shocked, and frightened audiences all over the world. This interview was conducted sometime around 2009. It was shortly after Lorraine had lost her husband, Ed. Over 50 years of paranormal investigations, research, and fighting things that we could not begin to possibly understand. These are the interviews of Lorraine Warren. What a nice introduction. That was truly my pleasure. Thank you very, very much for that introduction. That was very kind of you. Yes, I have been doing the work for 19, since 1952. And um, I have lost my husband three years ago. And um, he had been stricken. And I lived for um, five and a half years. And I took care of him for four and a half years of that time period. The loss of my husband is a very major thing. My husband 
work and dedication to this work was everything to him. I was still awestruck at this particular point, and I asked Lorraine, after thanking her once again for being a part of that, that she was classified as having certain psychic abilities. And then I asked her, how would she classify herself? Well, let me explain. I never gave help. I never gave myself titles. <laughs> uh, what happened, I was educated in private Catholic girls' schools. I began at the age of nine seeing lights around the nuns, mainly the nuns uh, that were uh, teaching me. And one day I made the mistake of saying that the one nun's lights were brighter and more beautiful than Mother Superior. Yeah, that was a bad move. That was a very, but I was, I was very naive I really felt that I wasn't alone in what I could see. I felt that people just didn't talk about it, and I thought I was paying that nun a compliment. And um, it started in that manner. That is how it started. And um, then when I shared it with my parents, who were the most loving people in the world. I grew up in an Irish Catholic home, and um, I, I couldn't say enough nice things about my parents, but they definitely did not understand what it was that I was able to see. Why didn't everybody see what I was seeing? And I didn't know why. So I began by suppressing that. Um, I would still see it, but I wouldn't talk about it because I didn't want to upset them. I didn't want to, and I didn't want to be different. I never wanted to be different. So as a result of that, um, I went until I was 16 years old. When I was 16, a group of girls in the summer when I was home from school um, that belonged to our a Catholic youth group at the church. Um, they were going to the movies, and they asked if if I could go, if I would go with them. And so I asked my parents, and I went with them to the movies. Now I never talked about this to anybody, you know, about the things that happened. I just forgot about that. I still experienced it. I experienced it all the time. I experienced it with, with animals. I experienced it with, with everything that God created. I experienced that. But I would not allow myself to be governed by it because I didn't understand it. And the night that I met my husband for the first time, he was an usher in this theater where we went to the movies. These girls all knew him. I did not know him. And they introduced me to him. And um, when they did, I, I'll tell you, I looked at him from the shine on his shoes to the color of his socks to the crease in his pants to the shirt and tie and jacket that he was wearing. And I thought, what a very nice young man you are. 
and to myself, to myself. Now, um, when the movie was over, this is during wartime, Second World War, and there were defense factories here. We lived on the coast, and there were defense factories, and there was air raids. And um, so there was the air raid, and we all had to wait before we could leave the theater. And so he came with us. So he said to us, um, I'll buy you girls a Coke at Rich's. It was like a little ice cream parlor on the corner. And this was on Old Mill Green in Bridgeport. And um, so he walked home with, with us. And he was walking like backwards and facing us and, and talking to us. They all knew him, but I didn't. And then finally, one of them said, Ed, we're almost to your home. And that meant his house was first. So as Ed ran across the street and up the stairs into his home, I didn't see that 16-year-old young athletic kid. I've seen my husband as he looked just before I lost him. And I wrote in my diary, I'll spend the rest of my life with you. Well, at that particular point, I was in tears. How many times in our lives do we get to encounter something like that? Mm-hmm. I look back to the time of that interview and I remember how naive I was. I had no idea that some years later I would be dealing with that kind of pain that I hear in Lorraine's voice during that particular interview every time I did one of these episodes. The pain of loss. The pain of hurt. We take that chance when we love something more than ourselves. But I knew he was still with her. Oh, he's very much with me. We're the family, our family. Mm -hmm. My son-in-law and daughter and our family are well aware that he is with me. He really is. And there are things that are happening you can't believe the things that are happening where my work is concerned that he is my, my son-in-law he will say at times oh my god Ed must be interceding Ed has made his presence known to me I'm positive of twice but then, aside from that, you know, there are times that I'm in bed. I'm getting, I'm getting in bed, and my pets all have to sleep on the bed with me. And then I, I, we have a canopy bed, and um, I turned. Um, I'm, I'm on a dead end street, and I'm really out in the country. Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by woods, and it's dark. It's very dark, so. Um, what happened was um, I looked as I turned over and put my arm around one of my kitties and then all the electromagnetic energy just came right across the room. And I said, hi, hon. It was at this point that we asked Lorraine after she had met Ed and realized that she was going to spend the rest of her life with him. How did it come about that she became involved 
in paranormal investigations and research and everything else that she's done. That was not easy for me. Okay. I grew up in a home that was very, very haunted. Really? Yes. That is where Ed's interest came from. Hmm. He grew up in a horrible, horrible home uh, that was extremely haunted. It was terrifying. He was a twin. He had a twin sister. And the things that he witnessed in that house were were bad. They were like your, your typical real bad demonic attack. And the clergy were there a lot because they lived right across from the um, Catholic rectory. And they were over there a lot uh, doing things. Ed's father was the state cop. And... Um, a lot of the time, a great deal of the time, you know, the father would be on duty. And the, the grandmother, Ed's grandmother, his mother's mother, lived six blocks away, and she was elderly. And when the kids would uh, fall asleep, she would go out to go and help her mother, you know, because the mother was bedridden, although I guess they had people staying with her. And um, the, some of the worst things happened to them as children. It was just absolutely horrible, the things. Um, things would move by themselves. They, the, why the mother, he will never understand this. He will never understand why, the, why his mother would leave the kids asleep in, in a house that was so bad. But she was a good mother in, in all ways. You know, I'm not saying a bad mother. You know, she had to go. And and, and he said how, um, you know, they would go to school like the next day and they wore the uniforms like you do in parochial schools. And they would be dead tired. They would, they would be so tired because of the things. And he told the things that would happen and how, like... Like the the one one of the case one of the phenomena that would occur in the house happened in the bedroom where him and his sister up until the age of nine shared a bedroom up until the age of nine they had their own beds and it was a big bedroom and this thing would come out of the closet. It had been seen by other members of the family. It was dark, it was black, and all the lights, like the mother would leave on lights, like in the kitchen and like that, and they, everything would darken. Like there was an intelligence behind what was really happening in that house. They finally moved from that house when Ed was 12 years of age, but there was never closure for him, never. Never, ever closure. The father would say, don't talk about it. Don't give it recognition and don't talk about it. And so he grew up like that. He really grew up that way. Ed's brother was a football player. And he, um, he got a scholarship and he went to college. This was, but he didn't go all the way through because it was the, the, with the military. He you know, went into the army. So 
as, as the result of this, he used to go and sleep at the coach's home rather than sleep there. Now, Ed's brother passed away about five or six years before Ed passed. And we broke our tour with our university speaking to fly mm-hmm. down to Florida where the brother was dying with cancer. One morning, Ed got up very, very early in the morning and told the nurse that he wanted to talk privately to his brother. He talked, he said, Frank, I want you to tell me some of the things that you remember about that house. He said, I I don't like to talk about that house. He said, why did you why did you leave the bet and I alone there? He said, I wasn't gonna sleep in that place. He said, every time I got a chance I'd go and stay at the coaches. So he owned up to all of this. There were never answers. There were never answers. Why did they stay that long in that house when all of this was going on? And what was the cause of all of it? Nobody probably investigated it. No, there was no one to get in. We didn't hear about things like that then. But the clergy were there all the time because they were only across the street. And they were always doing these blessings. And the father, his father, what a, what a, what a beautiful man. You know, when he was on duty, whether he was on duty, no matter where he was, he'd have his hand in his pocket. And he was always saying the rosary. Very, very beautiful. Very beautiful because of the situation in that home. But it was bad. That's where it started. Now, Ed Ed enlisted in the military, and he got caught, and they let him go on his 17th birthday. My husband made five crossings across the North Atlantic in active duty before he turned 18 years old. Incredible. And then his ship went down. The ship went down, and he was one of 69 survivors on um, this ship, these two ships that went down. And um, he... He was sent to rest camp. Uh, it's, it's painful to talk about this. It, to rest camp. And like, we were married on survivor's leave. And he thought he had enough points for discharge. And then he was sent to the Pacific. And his ship was numbered for the invasion of Japan. As a result of all this, when he got out of the military... I was pregnant. He did not know I was pregnant. I didn't know I was pregnant. And Judy was born while Ed was still in active duty. And um, when he came home, he pursued a career in art. And um, he, we, I'm, I'm an artist, but I'm a self-taught artist. And um, he um, made a living, an excellent living. phenomenal living and then what happened was he he started to tell me about this house I said I don't want to hear about that house Ed we're not supposed to believe in stuff like that I don't talk about stuff like that 
He said, that's because you never grew up as I grew up. That's what he would say. And then he would talk about this. He started to investigate these cases to understand more about what really happens in these homes. Studied the phenomena. He was avid reader. Ed developed a knowledge in religious demonology that no clergy in this world ever, ever claimed they've seen any man, layman, with phenomenal knowledge of religious demonology. He, he was constantly involved in doing research on religion and things of that nature. We worked with all religions. We worked with Buddhist monks in the mountains of Japan. We worked 27 years in the United Kingdom with the Anglican priests. We worked in Europe, in, Europe, in European countries, Brazil and Australia, with all over the world with all different nationalities. It is the same thing. It does not matter who you are, what you are, what you own or what you don't own, what the color of your skin is or what your faith is. There's one God, there's just numerous religions. We happen to be brought up in the Catholic faith. We're very open, always been very, very open with all clergy and people of all faiths and colors. And so as a result of this, he kept gaining this knowledge of what we were doing in these houses. Now, we go into a home. This is before we left the country, before we started to do that. We went to a home in New Hampshire called the Ocean Born Mary House. And we got lost on the way there. And there was this really beautiful, great big home out in the woods. I mean, it was nothing but woods where we were. There, it was a logging place, like a, a logging, a big logging camp. And just, I don't know how that house happened to be built there. But I said to Ed, I'll go up to the door. So I did. I went up to the door, and this lady answered, and I asked her for directions. And the table was set for four people. There was, uh, one was a high chair. No, I'm sorry, for three people. One was a high chair, and then two other chairs, and there was a fire in the fireplace. And so I heard this baby crying and crying and crying. And she's writing down all these directions for me. A very dignified woman. And I said, you better go and take care of the baby. And thank you very, very much for, you know, your help. So we went to the place where we were supposed to be going. Then we turned around and we went back and we were headed for the Oceanborn Mary House. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Um, and we stopped at this little coffee shop and they, they 
you know, they got talking to us and we said where we were from and like that and about this road we went down. And I said, well, I felt so bad in that house. What a beautiful house it is. But that baby, I said, my goodness, that lady looked elderly to have that baby. I, I said, I wonder if it was a grandparent. Mm. And the husband and wife that ran this restaurant looked at each other. You went to the, I forget the name of the family. Um, you went to that house? I said, yes. Yes, I went there for directions. And um, she said, there is no baby. I said, yes, I heard the baby crying. She said, the husband killed the baby and killed himself. And that house has been haunted ever since. And she's lived there by herself out in the woods all these years. So that, that was the first thing of an that type of nature to occur to me. We're making delivery of paintings that were ordered. And on the way back, we're going to the Oceanborn Mary House. So they told, told us where this Oceanborn Mary House was in Henniker, New Hampshire. And we went up the hill. Oh, it wasn't a hill, it was a mountain. And we got up there, it was dark, and you could see a light in the window on like what would be the attic of the house. It was a huge old colonial home. And so I said, I want to go up to the door. I said, are you kidding? You don't want to go up there. I said, yes, I do. Now, to this day, I do not understand one thing about myself, and that is I'm not afraid to go into a strange house, and I'm not afraid to go into a dark house. But I don't know why. I, I don't know why. I, 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 I guess I feel I'm protected, and I'm, I'm not afraid. So we went in, and Ed asked this man, Lewis Roy was his name, about this haunting, and Ed was recording all of this while he was doing it. The man sat on one chair. I sat, like, partly behind Ed with my arms folded on the back of his chair. And all of a sudden, my ears began to ring. And my ears rang so loud that I couldn't hear anything. I couldn't hear, I couldn't hear Ed talking. I couldn't hear Mr. Roy talking to him. And then I got like somebody came behind me and grabbed my shoulders on both sides and I left my body. And when I left my body, I looked down and I could see myself. I could see myself sitting there. I could see my husband. I could see Mr. Roy. But I could tell that Ed was very, very, very upset. He said, what is the matter with my wife? What is the matter with her? 
this is what he told me later. I couldn't hear anything. And he said, um, she said, she must be clairvoyant. He said, she's not clairvoyant, she's my wife. And years later, he got such a kick out of saying that. <laughs> but it really, truthfully, wasn't until a period of time that I was at UCLA, and they wanted to test me as a natural psychic. No, that's, I, I, I wasn't involved in doing any kind of training. I, if there was training, I didn't even know about it. I never read books on it. It was all very, very natural from the time I was nine. But this was the big thing. Dr. Selma Moss and Dr. Johnson were studying curling photography. The ability to photograph the aura, to me, was the, that, no matter what, I had to go and spend time and work with them. Next week on The Mountain Mysteries, In the Shadows, Part 2, The Mountain Mystery of Lorraine Warren. Become a Patreon member now and get the episode as early as next Tuesday. I'm Chris Sloan for The Mountain Mysteries. Stay mysterious. If you enjoy The Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support The Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.